Here we go. You're listening to Gerard and Friends. This week, we're discussing part two of The Plague by Albert Camus. Look, Mitch, we're into the second part of this book. We both recognize that the first 10 to 13 pages, the power in them is, again, this is a book that's written 80 years ago, but how similar or paralleled these fictional experiences are to what we're experiencing now during COVID-19. I mean, I think you agree with that. Yeah, no, I think like they really set up this this picture of people who are kind of suffering alone. They're surrounded by people. They're surrounded by everything that's familiar. And yet there's this sense that they're isolated from their loved ones. They're isolated from the things that gave them so much structure and purpose and meaning. Uh, I did find one excerpt pretty interesting. And it goes back to what we talked about last week with part one, with the idea of knowledge and understanding. Give me, give me a page about. number for me and for the people listening. Yeah. So if you're uh, reading the vintage international copy, it would start on the bottom of 68. Okay. So on the bottom of 68, um, they're talking about people trying to escape, right? They're try- talking about people that are trying to to bribe their way out of the gates and the sentries are the guards that are keeping people in and it says in the early days a favored few managed to persuade the sentries at the gate to allow them to get messages through to the outside world but that was only at the beginning of the epidemic when the sentries found it natural to obey their feelings of humanity Later on, when these same centuries had had the gravity of the situation drummed into them, they flatly refused to take responsibilities whose possible after effects they could not foresee. Hmm. I find that just a really interesting glimpse into the mindset of people who are trying to keep order. Mm -hmm. You know, at first they're willing to break rules because of their humanity yeah but as the humanity plays second fiddle to the gravity of the situation their real um their real impetus for action is can i foresee what the results of this will be do i Mm -hmm. have do i have foreknowledge of what's going to happen if i do this is it going to bring chaos is it going to bring order and the question of humanity is really put on the back burner for questions of like maintaining order. We see people slowly coming to the realization that plague is ubiquitous. It creates an equalization amongst all of humanity. There are no special exceptions. There's a handful of just great one-liners that I ended up um, highlighting through that first 13 pages. It, that Again, com- totally connected with what our society is feeling regarding, you know, the imposition on all of us on this thing, even though we're not necessarily as individuals experiencing plague or sickness or flu or COVID, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Although that being said, I should let the listeners know that I tested positive for COVID. So, <laughs> so right. one of us, one of us actually is experiencing plague. <laughs> And I will be the one that tells you that you will get no special exceptions. You need to keep <laughs> on your reading and stay on schedule. <laughs> yeah. So 
uh, I'm fine. Uh, no, no need to worry about me. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, that hit home the difference between anticipation of plague and experience of plague. And, and I think it's worth inter- it's worth noting from an experiential standpoint because I think this we're struggling with this as a society right now as individuals with COVID is we may be carriers we may be carriers of plague and feel nothing right exactly. i.e. your wife also tested positive for COVID and has experienced nothing now yeah. for long I've held that you are a weakling that probably would have been killed off in earlier evolutionary times but yeah. Yeah. the point still remains. I was definitely born for the post-penicillin age, so I'm very happy, <laughs> very happy about that. But uh, yeah, it's crazy. So four of my family members, uh, well, three family members and, and myself, we've tested positive. Four totally different experiences. My aunt was just knocked out, like 14 days of fever, aches, pains. My grandma, who's had just a brutal year of health problems, was basically just exhausted and had no appetite. I got a fever for a few days and my wife basically did yoga every day. So that was our four experiences of COVID. this book I, I talked and we talked a lot about allegory last time and i think for people that haven't read this book and maybe their only interaction with it outside of the text itself is listening to us i think it's important to just at least kind of tip of the cap wag of the finger as stephen colbert used to say um to what are classical interpretations of this book and the first is given the time that it's written in given Camus and his life which we know you know he was a heavy part of the French resistance in Paris both from a personal writing but also from a journalistic standpoint this book the plague has always been looked at classically as an allegory for the Nazi occupation of France and the German expansion um, as the plague that you know kind of was there for years and stifled, you know, a lot of human existence, creativity, love, and obviously a significant amount of people died. So that's, that's, the, that's the first piece. And the second piece is I, I did some reading and I didn't realize that, that some scholars draw this work and a handful of other Camus work in kind of what they call his second phase or second stage of writing. And they, they say he's drawing upon the myth of Prometheus and I don't know if, if people know that, but he was a titan. I think they were like the second tier god. And he's acknowledged as being the guy, the guy that brought fire to humanity down from the gods. He gave him fire. He's a god that's looked at as kind of a god of humanism. And for that, he was punished. His eternal punishment by Zeus was every day having his liver eaten out by an eagle. The eagle represented Zeus. And, and the, the uh, liver... The liver, by the way, represented, you know, the, the place where our emotions come from. The, the emotional core to the ancient Greeks was your gut and not your, your heart. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we, we draw the parallel there of, you know, you've been a bad God because you're too much of a humanist, so to speak. And so this idea of Prometheus, you know, kind of this fight for humanity and, and human goodness in the face of 
the gods. I just think it's important. And I don't know if you have any other insights for it, but I think it's important that we bring that up because if somebody reads the plague and listens to our podcast, they might say, well, okay, you know, it was a book about a disease and now it's really applicable because of what's going on right now. But the book was a strong allegory in the late 1940s, early 1950s because of what the world had just experienced with the Nazis. Yeah. And I think, you know, drawing on your comparison of Prometheus, Prometheus is interesting. If you compare it to the creation myths in the first three chapters of Genesis, you really have a a completely different understanding of the human experience, the human situation. So in the Greek version, Prometheus formed humans out of clay, which is exactly what you find in the second and third chapters of Genesis. You find God creating humanity out of, out of the dust of the earth. But whereas civilization comes from the gods, and so too the problems of civilization in the Greek myths, the problems of civilization in the early chapters of Genesis are born out of human violence, human choice. The God is good and the person makes the bad decision. In the Greek understanding, humanity is better from the outset and the gods are capricious. In Camus' novel, we're kind of getting that Greco-Hellenized picture of humanity. All of these things are happening under silent skies. He's constantly referencing the skies. People look up and there is no God up there to help them. They're just sort of left to their own devices. And where the gods would reside in the sky amongst the stars and the sun, there's nothing but silence. Yeah, and we definitely we have that image. It's somewhere towards the end of book two where I think it's with Tarot, where they're talking about, he and I think it's Rue, are talking about the goodness of mankind. So we're seeing, and I think that's a great point, Mitch, we're seeing a, a split happening here. And I love the way that you broke that down. There is you know, a view that says, we've inherited things from the gods and that's why the world is screwed up. And then there's, we screwed up and the gods are here to either fix it or they're absent. And we know where, especially at book two, where Camus is falling in that regard. I think I have that that reference that you're talking about in page 131. Mm-hmm. Let me just read uh, part of this paragraph, starting with Doubtless Today. Doubtless Today, many of our fellow citizens are apt to yield to the temptation of exaggerating the services they rendered. But the narrator is inclined to think that by attributing over-importance to praiseworthy actions, one may, by implication, be paying indirect but potent homage to the worst side of human nature. For this attitude implies that such actions shine out as rare exceptions, while callousness and apathy are the general rule. The narrator does not hold that view. The evil that is in the world always comes of ignorance, and good intentions may do as much harm as malevolence if they lack understanding. On the whole, men are more good than bad. That, however, isn't the real point, but they are more or less ignorant, and it is this that we call vice or virtue. Yeah, yeah, that was the passage I was thinking of. 
Yeah. So that really kind of gets to the heart of what he thinks about these classic ideas of good and evil and vice and virtue. They're really rooted in ignorance or understanding as opposed to something that's inherent in our nature. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gerard talks about instinctual versus non-instinctual. And I think that there's a parallel there for, you know, the intention is not necessarily what it is. It's knowledge, as you brought back to in the first episode, right? It's, it's what is that knowledge and what is our understanding, regardless of the intention behind it. I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. We just got done talking about kind of the more excess, <clears throat> excuse me, Diet Coke. Uh, we just got done talking about uh, the kind of existentialist perspective and the skies that are empty, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have what is probably the, if not, you know, in the top five most important parts of this second book, which is Father Panelo's sermon. You know, and I ask the question, I go, does Camus really understand Christian theology or is he making a caricature of it, right? We definitely get kind of a fire and brimstone feel to this sermon, but this isn't, this is obviously a really smart person, right? This is obviously somebody who studies philosophy. And so I look at that and I go, what's he setting up? Because it didn't seem like a very articulate critique, I guess is the way I was going to say it. But again, this is right in your sweet spot between literature, philosophy, and religion. And so I really wanted to hear what you thought. Well, I do think that uh, there is an element of caricature. You know, so he gives this speech that the plague is basically a punishment given to the people because they've erred and sinned. And this is a way for them to recognize their error and repent. I, I think that in general, there's a thousand nuanced opinions on these types of plagues and moments in real history. And yet the ones that always get played on the news and in the media are the ignorant, you know, the Franklin Grahams that are talking about the sin of homosexuality and how God's punishing America. We hear those sound bites and those clips and we hear them played in 50 different venues 30 times a day. And it's easy to get the sense that that's Christian thought, that that's yeah. the theology that's dominant in Christian thought. No mention of Jesus, no mention of the Gospels, clearly things that Camus would have known to use. Now, maybe the Father comes back in a later episode, right? This was just a weekly sermon, so who knows, right? Yeah, I do think it's interesting that later on in part two, you know, Father Panelo comes and volunteers to work with these uh, sanitary groups, these volunteer groups. Yeah. And they're talking about him saying, did you hear his stupid sermon? Yeah, it was pretty stupid. But, you know, he's here and people tend to be better than some of their worst opinions. That's I, a great I, line. Yeah, I thought that... There's that great line about Christianity too. Keep going. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, but I, I did think that was a way of redeeming that character in a very humanist vein. Um, and I did appreciate that. 
but it would have been interesting to give more of a nuanced theological argument in that sermon because the the father panelo was referred to as a scholar as yeah. you know someone who has a great deal of knowledge you wouldn't expect a really highly educated priest to be so backwards and ignorant that being said we have a few examples and like i said before they they appear in our news media early and often and so it's easy to say well they they rule the day yeah um yeah where is that line where it's like people christians sometimes say the worst things or they say things in ignorance i found that so fascinating yeah here it is uh so it's on my page 125 Taro's gray eyes met the doctor's gaze. What did you think of Panelo's sermon, doctor? The question was asked in a quite ordinary tone, and Rue answered in the same tone. I've seen too much of hospitals to relish any idea of collective punishment. But as you know, Christians sometimes say that sort of thing without really thinking it. They're better than they seem. That's a wonderful line, and I think it encapsulates... Panelo at that point, right? Maybe a knee-jerk reaction, but then there's a there's an onset of grace later. Yeah, maybe what Camus is trying to do is to show the tension that a person inherently has to deal with if they hold the view that humans are flawed and evil mm-hmm. and yet worth redeeming. So if you hold these judgments that we do rotten things and we deserve the rotten things that come to us, then to want to see the goodness in humanity come out, there's a tension there. I mean, which one is it? Are we good and worth good things or are we these rotten characters that deserve damnation? I think Camus has done a good job of playing with that tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I found it interesting that this sermon, people were talking about it later and people were really affected by it. And so if we move out of the, you know, looking so deeply, is this a caricature? What did this give any nuance? Um, I do think in these kinds of moments, you have religious voices that draw a very fiery following. Or maybe not a fiery following, maybe a very like humble following. You find this after battles, invasions, you know, military invasions. You find it after natural disasters. And it definitely does elicit a lot of emotion from people who attend religious gatherings. biggest character probably in the second part of this book is the reporter you know there's clearly a self-interested motive there he's trying a lot of different avenues to get out of town and then ultimately there's a conversion at the end it seems like but mitch talk to me about what what you saw there and 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 what do you think is interesting about his kind of progression through the second part of this the story yeah, well, I've got to be, you know, transparent. So you and I are sort of not thrilled with the treatment of the uh, of the father at times because of our own Christian uh, commitments. Because I can't stand journalism, I, 
I love that this guy is a total, uh, just a washout. I don't know. But I find it interesting, and this says a lot about Camus. Camus was a journalist. Yeah. And so, you know, here we are taking offense to, to the father, and, and here's Camus taking his own profession and really scrutinizing it and saying, what is the basis of this thing? So I got to, you know, tip my hat to Camus because uh, I think that's a very honest and, and vulnerable thing for him to have done to paint this character who's supposed to be a documenter of the truth. Somebody- yeah, like th- this is a big story that's going on. Like he should be like, I've got human interest. I've got a government story. I've got whatever. And instead he's trying to get out of there as fast as possible. Yeah. can't. I mean, just doesn't have anything to say about anything that's happening. And it's almost as if, you know, he, he says that his editor is a bum or whatever. It's almost as if he needs an editor to tell him what to write. He needs yeah. somebody to say, Hey, you have to do this. Yeah, I found it. I found that whole treatment of journalism really fascinating. I find it especially fascinating now in our COVID circumstances because the news cycle now is relentless. If there's not people dying here, we're going to Ecuador. We're telling you about all the deaths in Ecuador. If there's enough ventilators in Seattle, we're going to tell you about how there's no ventilators in Detroit. I mean, we're, we're, we're covering anything and everything to scare you 24 hours a day for however many months this thing is going to last. So it's interesting to have this representation of journalism who's just like, I, I don't care. I got to get out of here. He's a coward. Yeah. He calls himself a coward at one point, or he says, I'm not a coward, which is a self-indictment. You know, thou doth protest too much. But um, again, I, you and I mentioned this earlier from a Girardian standpoint, you know, that's, that's a very Girardian criticism of media, right? The, the, you head to the centers of all this violence and you're a part of this violence by no one other than your physical proximity and your perpetuation of the violence to the world at large, but you claim no responsibility for it. And that's, that's, I think the, that's, I think what makes the reporter Rambert so unsympathetic is that he has a singular focus and it is 100% selfish. While Rambert doesn't uphold his end of the bargain per se, he's, he's not playing the part of the journalist. What he does do in this part is he plays the part of the foil who challenges Dr. Rue's understanding and Dr. Rue's approach to his work so on page it's my page uh, 86 and 87 rue and rambert are getting into an argument over whether or not certificates would help you get out whether or not you know we know how many people are sick and and we're we're really questioning what we know at this point on the top of 87 rambert says but damn it, doctor, can't you see it's a matter of common human feeling? Or don't you realize what this sort of separation means to people who are fond of each other? He's talking about being separated from his... Right. Uh, Rue was silent for a moment, then said he understood it perfectly. He wished nothing better than that Rambert should be allowed to return to his wife and that all who loved one another and were parted should come together again. But skipping down... 
Rambert says bitterly, you can't understand. You're using the language of reason, not of the heart. You live in a world of abstractions. This comes up again in 106. Rue and Rambert are talking about the different types of language and the different types of reasons. And so this comes up again and again. How would you describe abstraction in this sense? Not to put you on the spot, but... Well, I assumed that what he meant was, you know, that the doctor was living in a world where things could be labeled, things could be understood by their component parts and how they're, yeah. how they're manifest. But it's a great question because I actually tripped over that word abstraction when I read it and thought, what does he mean by that? Yeah. You know, aren't there a lot of examples of abstractions in this book so far? Yeah. yeah. There's another interesting argument at the end between Rue and Rambert. Um, and again, it's just talking in, in abstract terms. You know, you could accuse Rambert of being abstract at this point. Yeah. So uh, Rambert has revealed that he fought on the losing side of the Spanish Civil War. And they're talking about courage, whether or not he has it. And then Rambert says, courage, I know now that man is capable of great deeds, but if he isn't capable of a great emotion, well, he leaves me cold. And then Taro says, one has the idea that he is capable of everything. Rambert says, I can't agree. He's incapable of suffering for a long time or being happy for a long time, which means that he's incapable of anything really worthwhile. He looked at the two men in turn, then asked, tell me, Taro, are you capable of dying for love? I couldn't say, but I hardly think so, as I am now. You see, Rambert says, but you're capable of dying for an idea. One can see that right away. Well, personally, I've seen enough of people who die for an idea. I don't believe in heroism. I know it's easy, and I've learned it can be murderous. What interests me is living and dying for what one loves. Mm. And so he draws that distinction between these ideas which you can't love. You can't love the platform of the Republican or the Democratic Party. Even people that are just crazy about their political candidate don't love these ideas. They're garbage. That's my own commentary. But if you're a communist, if you're a, a, an anarchist or whatever, it's not love that's driving you. It's just this idea that you think if implemented would bring some sort of order that's now lacking. Yeah. But what this guy's saying is, come on, let's get rid of all these stupid ideas. I fought for an idea in the Spanish civil war. I lost. And now I just want to love things. There's something that I can sympathize with that. But what do you think? I mean, is that a sufficient understanding of love or a sufficient understanding of how we relate to people? I mean, I, the way I look at it, again, and I'm a little bit of a jerk, but it, that's romantic idealism. Like, that's wonderful to say, but not only what do I think, but what I think what the novel says and pieces that we've already talked about, specifically in the first part of book two, is that that's not enough, right? Yeah. That that's, that's, not an, that's not enough, and that's not... So if I, if I went to your eHarmony profile right now, you would say... <laughs> You'd say, ladies, listen, I am not a romantic idealist. <laughs> it's just not love. 
Touche. Touche. <laughs> In the context of the plague, though, right, we see there's a bifurcation between who's – and I don't – you know, I'm not trying to crawl up my own butt here and, and be, be overly philosophical, but there's a – you know, he's talking about loving one person one special person, a privileged person, therefore, who is deserving of love, right? Whereas some of these other people, when you juxtapose them with Rue and Tarot and um, maybe even Father Panelo, you look that there's, there's actually love for a larger or a universal congregation, all the people of the town, et cetera, et cetera. And so I appreciate that. But again, that's what he says is an abstraction, right? That is a self-serving argument for the situation that he's put himself in, but it's a situation that's universal, right? And then we see at the end, he comes to realize that Rue's wife is not even there, right? right? That he he is actually the same as Rampart. And again, let's talk about Gerard. Conflict doesn't come from differences. It comes from similarities, right? The, and what Camus does at the end of that section of the novel is he shows that they're actually similar which is why they are rivalrous right they believed that they were on totally different ends of the spectrum but in truth they were actually imitators of each other maybe not necessarily explicit imitation but in the character in the way that the characters are drawn out and their dialogue we see that they are incredibly imitative they've just chosen subtly different ways to act out what is their love of other people and of course he does. He he ends up at the very end coming and saying, "Yeah, that's Can I help and you? that's that's what I thought was interesting." And I I used the term earlier, and I it, to me it sounded like a conversion experience, like because it was so abrupt, right? We don't have Rampart trying to get out of town. He can't get out of town. He broods, he broods, he broods, and then he has this gigantic fall on the altar experience, right? It's just all of a sudden he's like. I give up. And I think that is what he's drawn is what Camus drawing on the plague as well, which is there's a lot of conversation about how to fight the plague, but where Camus ends up and there's this line that's like, you know, there, the silver lining to the plague was their despair, but it, cause it kept them all sane. Right. Like okay. there, I, I, I might be subtly misquoting that, but, but it's that, um, I, again, third time I'm going to use this word. It's that ubiquity that I think ultimately starts bringing people together. And what Camus would argue and what Gerard would argue, it is these people are all the same. Yeah. What I would argue is that the word ubiquitous is ubiquitous in this conversation. <laughs> it's everywhere. On, you made me choke on my water. We should get a bell every time I use ubiquitous, which is real. We've talked about Tarot a lot, but not a lot of kind of in-depth analysis. To me, he just seems like kind of a good guy. Maybe he's the horse and animal farm, which I always love to draw upon, right? He's the person that puts his head down and says, this is what needs to get done and I'm going to do it, right? He seems very um, selfless in that regard. I think what's interesting is he says, we don't know if this is going to work or not, but we have to be doing something. We have yeah. to commit. and. I think there is something to that, whether or not a mask keeps you from actually getting COVID-19, it does say something to the people around you 
about your commitment to their well-being. You know, yeah. it says, I care enough to do the thing that's recommended for all of our well-being. And I get the sense that that's kind of the driving force in Tarot's life is it's like, I don't know if this is going to actually make a dent, but I know that doing nothing isn't going to make a dent. So let's roll our sleeves up. Um, speaking of work, one thing that I wanted to bring up, because I wanted to bring it up based on your comments in the first episode, you know, you talked about love, work and death, right. And how work, um, I think, I think I used the term, everything was supplicated to work in this society. And it seems like everybody has gone back to work in the second section of the book, right? So Panelo now gives a speech. Before he was just this priest wandering around. Now he's back at work. Tarot starts his squads. Cotter is now back to smuggling for whatever reasons that haven't been entirely revealed to us yet. The exception is Rambert, which who we talked about before, who protests, um, you know, taking part of that own work as part of his own protest about his innocence. But did you pull anything out of the fact that, you know, really work has started here and it seems like not only the town, despite the shutdowns and the cafes and things like that, the town is back to work fighting play now. I now have a sensitivity to people doing their jobs and work as an institution because of what you said in the first. And I noticed it seems like everybody went back to work in the second piece. Yeah, I think everybody went to work. And I think everybody eventually at some point found value or some redeeming quality in their work with the notable exception of the bureaucracy. That's a good point. And, really good and point. It, it's totally really, absent. Camus actually has a, a critique saying, I can't believe, or the narrator, I should say, has a critique. says, I can't believe they do all of these just never ending irrelevant tasks that don't do anything. At the same time, these characters are doing something that they think might not be relevant. It might not do any good. And yet it has some value just because they're doing it on their own impetus and they're not doing it as some sort of bureaucratic cog in some bureaucratic wheel. And clearly, you know, there's going to be, they have to come back at some point, right? There have to be a reference and it'll be interesting to see whose work is most fruitful, right? Is it going to be Dr. Rue's work in the hospital? Is it with the serum? Is it going to be the, the, the squads? You know, because they are doing, he says, I don't know if it's going to work, but the work that they're talking about, fumigating basements and, and attics, keeping families under quarantine, transporting bodies, right? Like that is stuff that we do to prevent contagion. So they're clearly doing work there. I, like I said, my guess is, is we're going to see from the father again, just because of how, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right word, patronizing maybe that first sermon was. Um, and so anyways, I just, I, I, I think that the idea of work and how we work, and I totally forgot the government. I think that's really interesting. So we've talked about Rue, we've talked about Rampart, we've talked about Tarot. I have a question for you. I don't understand Grant's writing project. He's writing this one line, you know, and he's constantly going over it again. I don't get the point of his writing. I mean, I, I could make some rather large abstractions, but I'd be pulling them straight out of my ass, you know, like I, yeah. I, I don't get it. And so I, I don't see it from a, 
it doesn't move the, the story forward for me. It doesn't seem to have a philosophical or allegorical connection. And I'm just like, what's going on here? I don't totally get it either. But what I do get is the guy can't find words. He can't make words work at all. He's constantly revising his own words in this fictional story that he's writing or whatever it is that he's writing. Who knows? And yet he's the keeper of the statistics. He's always there with the facts and figures. And when you ask him questions or when he's called upon to like do something in the service of this plague, he can draw up the the documents and the facts and figures. And I I think maybe that's a, a commentary on the way that bureaucracy works. So I do think that's kind of an interesting element of that character, but I am with you in the sense that like, I don't know what he's writing and I really at this point don't care. Yeah. We're halfway through the book and I go, I don't know where this guy's in here. Like he's not, he's not, he's not even like as a catalyst to move something forward. Maybe he's our narrator and we find out that this is all his words that he's, uh, he's come. I don't know, but yeah. Interesting. Interesting. You know, we, we talk about, you know, maybe we'll find out that he's the, he's the narrator or, we talk about how we haven't read ahead and maybe we'll be wrong about something. Yeah, I talked last week at, at the end about potential scapegoating narratives. And, you know, we really haven't seen that yet, but there was a quintessential scapegoat moment at the top, in, in, in between page 115 and 116 in my copy, where Tarot is talking to Othon, who's, I guess, the, you know, he's the big political figure. He's the, the magistrate? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. So Tarot is talking to him, and he pointed out how these strict regulations are being enforced. And uh, he says, I don't like it one bit, he told Tarot. Quarantine or not, she's under suspicion, which means they are too. They had just been in a house where uh, somebody could have potentially gotten plague. And Tarot pointed out, he goes, but by that standard, if it came to that, everyone was under suspicion. But the manager had his own ideas and was not to be shaken out of him. No, sir, you and I, we're not under suspicion, but they certainly are. And I love that from a scapegoat standpoint, because what it says was, is that there's two guys looking at somebody else, one other person, one family, one household. And the reasoning that the government official uses is like, hey, you know, if if she's got to be quarantined, everybody in that house has got to be quarantined. We have to have no exceptions. And Tarot, who again is becoming a sympathetic character, goes, well, wait a second, by that standard, you and me are both under suspicion. He goes, no, 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 no. We're good. You should join with me, join my crowd, and let's single out these people. And I just love that. No, sir, you and I, we're not under suspicion but they certainly are. And I find that a marvelous little scapegoat piece. But that being said, as a whole, we haven't seen a real good scapegoat narrative so far. And so therefore I was probably wrong. No, well, look, uh, going ahead a little bit on my page 146, Tarot is talking about the magistrate and he says that fellow is enemy number one. And so you get the sense that there is a, the beginnings of a real conflict that's going to escalate between those two and not just between them, but between the factions that they represent. 
yeah. because you've got this volunteer crew who's working and doing meaningless tasks that they think are worth it just because. And then you've got the bureaucracy, the city government that are doing meaningless tasks that are not redeemable because they're but, part of a bureaucracy. But they want to hold on to the franchise, so to speak. Yeah. So it's two, two groups, two factions doing meaningless work, and they both look at each other with suspicion. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting, too, because now you've got the journalist joining one of those factions. Yeah. And so in our society, the scapegoating that's most compelling is scapegoating that happens in the news, you know, in the news media or however you want to characterize it. We, we scapegoat all kinds of people on the front pages of our newspapers, blame them for all kinds of things. I've heard people say that Donald Trump is to blame for COVID-19. I mean, blanket statement, Donald Trump right. is the guy that brought COVID-19 into existence. Right. And then you find a little bit more nuance, but not much more grace when you say Donald Trump is responsible for all the mismanagement of this. Yeah. Well, all the mismanagement. Yeah. Yeah. How and, could we, how could we expect one person to do all of that thing? And I, it, people should know neither of us are fans of Donald Trump in no. any sense, but, but the scapegoat narrative typically happens when, you, you know, and you could, again, the, the Trumpian kind of parallels are tricky, but in the, in the, inside the novel, right. It's where's the voices coming from. It's a competing voice. If they have the reporter, Will the other side be scapegoated? Because typically the people that we scapegoat don't actually have a voice. Exactly. And the other thing that we need to say, not just that we're not big fans of Donald Trump, but also the scapegoating that we're talking about is a form of mob violence. Yes. And so it's 50 million Americans blaming Donald Trump for everything. Just like there was 50, 100 million Americans that blamed Barack Obama for everything. And so... Yeah. And when, George W. Bush for everything. Everything. It's just, it's, it's, it's so stupid, if you want my honest opinion. There's just no self-reflection in mob violence. It's just not a part of mob mentality. Yeah, I, you're right. You, you know, when we're looking at scapegoat narratives, we're looking for victim or victims that are a small group. They're opposed to the large mob and the large mob lynches them, excommunicates them, banishes them, whatever it might be. They remove them from society in order to bring peace to the greater society. And so that's what I'm looking for. As this contagion rises, as violence continues, we're starting to see, and you picked out good examples of mobs starting to come together. And so you're right, I forgot about that line about him being the enemy um, that comes later in the book. But I, I, this book is really interesting because there's been no dialogue outside of a handful of, of main characters. I wonder, because we've just now started to see people congregating. We had a congregation in the church that kind of was standing outside and flowed in. There was some overflow. You have groups of people congregating in bars and cafes. And so that may be where you start to see groups not just congregating, but forming against others. Prior to this, most of the groups that we found were actually quarantine groups in parts of the city that were sort of blocked off. But now you're starting to see people are moving, people are congregating, and they're all held within this 
this pressure cooker, the city that they can't leave with a plague that's only getting stronger. So we're going to start finding people, blaming people, and uh, probably blaming people out of that sense of emotion mm -hmm. and not out of the things that they typically put their faith in. Yeah. Yeah. That's my that's my guess. Now we could both be very wrong and we're gonna we're gonna see. You've been listening to Gerard and Friends, the most ubiquitous podcast in Brandon's life.